Well, thanks very much. And um, so the question that I'm interested in is where do moral values come from? And of course, as you know, traditionally there have been a variety of answers. One is that God provides. Um, this has not worked all that well when you look over historical time because for at least uh, about 200,000 years, humans appear to have, homo sapiens that is, appear to have lived in very small groups. Organized religion appears not to have emerged and taken hold until well after the advent of agriculture. Nevertheless, there's good reason to think that those small groups lived in some sort of accord, had some kind of cooperation, and so forth. Now, a number of people have looked at this question and have said that perhaps there is a platform that is in common amongst all mammals, different probably from bees and ants, but something that we see that is unique to all mammals and that it has its roots in something very special that happened in the development of the mammalian brain. And that is a reorganization of that part of the brain to ensure that the parents, or at least the mother, cares for the offspring. And so that's the hypothesis I'm going to look at uh, a little more closely. Now, it is also quite common, along with the idea that um, religion is the source of moral value, to say that somehow humans with their big, fat, wonderful, powerful brains use their reason, and then we just teach the little buggers uh, to do the right thing. And if we don't do that, uh, they're not likely to behave properly. Darwin, interestingly, um, took a very different view. And so rather than the view that Dawkins has, which is somehow that caring for others is sort of unnatural and has to be forced on, um, on, on the young, Darwin had a very different take on it. Now, in preparing this talk, I was moved to think about this wonderful old idea that was very common in the Elizabethan periods, but probably before that too, which organized all of the stuff in the world according to a kind of hierarchy, with God, of course, at the top, and then angels, heaven, I'm not quite sure, anyway, whatever. Uh, man, sometimes woman was in there, sometimes woman was not, or at least there was a big space between the two. Um, animals, plants, fire, and rocks. Well, it's sort of a motley crew, but the important part is that humans are actually, and this is actually something that, that Humphrey referred to, a bit like the angels. Now, there were many different stories about the great chain of being. Some had aristocrats and then plebeians. Um, others didn't make that distinction. But my all-time favorite is this one. And uh, that is because, of course, it puts mathematicians uh, ahead of God. Now, I don't know. It's partly, um, I'm guessing now, I'm no sociologist, so I'm just making this up. But I think it's partly the influence of this idea of the great chain of being that has motivated sometimes some rather uncritical and uninformed claims about the nature of human nature. That only humans are conscious. That only humans have empathy. That only humans have insight. Or only humans can talk and think. Well, aren't we grand? 
Now, one of the things that is surely remarkable over the last several decades is the work that's been done by primatologists and other field biologists, by archaeologists, and by geneticists. And I think one of the lessons of, of biology in general is that, yes, of course, we're grand, uh, but maybe we shouldn't quite overstate the case. And that rather than putting ourselves up there as the pinnacle, uh, we're there along with snakes and dung beetles and all the rest. But it has been very common, especially amongst philosophers, to insist that only humans are genuinely moral, after which comes quite a long sermon devoid of very much evidence. What did Darwin think? Well, Darwin thought that our moral sense or conscience is rooted in essentially three things. Our social instincts, and I'm going to link that to the thing I mentioned early on, attachment to offspring, to others. Habits, but habits, of course, are subcortical. It's part of the reward system, and you only get fancy, interesting institutions and habits when those subcortical structures hold hands in the right sort of way uh, with cortex. Ditto for reason. Now, we don't, of course, really know very much in detail about the evolution of mammals. We know something about the end product, but much of what happened in between is still guesswork. And even the date, actually, as we know from the most recent issue of Science, uh, is still rather controversial. But there were a number of factors that came together in a really interesting way. And one was homeothermy. And almost certainly the first uh, sauropsids, reptiles who were warm-blooded, had a very special advantage. They could hunt at night when it was cold, and they could also hunt further afield. The downside was you have to eat 10 times as much if you're a homeotherm. Another thing that happened with mammals and also with birds is that we see this development of this rather extraordinary thing, the laminar cortex. In birds, it's not laminar, so I'm just going to leave birds uh, to the side and acknowledgments to uh, Harvey Carton. So we get laminar cortex. Well, what is this? And why is it so great? And the answer seems to be that one of the things that happens is infants are, vo are born very immature amongst mammals. You have very few of them. They're very immature. They tune themselves up. That is, their brains tune up to the local environment. Their brains, by virtue of cortex, have a much more flexibility uh, than does a newt or a, a, a turtle. And finally, of course, there is this remarkable invention of the placenta, which releases all kinds of important neurochemicals into uh, the body and the brain. The placenta is a whole beautiful story of its own, uh, and I won't go there. So the, the basic logic of the way this story goes is that until mammals, there were many social animals, social insects, and sociality of one kind or another probably evolved many times. But by and large, the brainstem was organized to see to my food, my water, my warmth, my safety. Once we have mammals with the reconfiguration of the hypothalamus, we see something quite different. 
that that sense of me now extends to my offspring, to mine. And that is a huge, huge difference. Now, of course, certain other things had to happen. Um, that is, I don't feel the baby's hunger, so the baby has to do a very special thing, namely squeal, which causes pain in me, which causes me uh, then to react appropriately. So on this really rather different approach to the nature of sociality, sociability turns out to be a basic value for social mammals. It's a basic value in the case of mammals because it allows for the nurturing of the offspring. But also as evolution marched on, it turned out that group living offered certain very special kinds of advantages, both against predation and also in cooperation uh, in the hunt. The hub of the story, but it's only the hub, and it may not even be the hub, um, is this nonopeptide uh, oxytocin. It's augmented by the reward system and elaborated with the expansion of the cortex, which, as Jacques Panksepp is fond of saying, for all intents and purposes, is a blank slate, uh, at least just before birth. So one of the things we see, but we do not yet really understand, is this expansion of the brain and the expansion of the cortex. And we don't, and, and, and I think in large measure, we don't understand it because we don't really know what the cortex is doing for us. We say, well, it makes us smart. Well, yes, fine. So just to remind you, the cortex has this remarkable laminar structure. If you look at what's called the dorsal cortex of a reptile, it's just this kind of loose, maybe two-layer thing. And somehow this laminar cortex was able to expand hugely in, uh, in humans. And why exactly it was selected for, we don't know. What we do know, though, is that as uh, the mammalian radiation proceeded, there were many, many different kinds of ways of being social. There was just me and my offspring, which maybe characterizes grizzly bears, but then there were others that were me, my offspring, and my kith, the others in the group. And kind of depending on ecological conditions and how things were working out, um, then it, you may have a large group or not. Now, it, Given that basic story, it looks like there were many ways of tweaking the platform. The platform that consists of new circuitry plus oxytocin, vasopressin, the um, prolactins, um, the opioids, the cannabinoids, many ways of tweaking those. And we learned this from the prairie voles, who turn out to be monogamous parabonders, at least up to a point. Uh, that is that uh, some of them uh, do get a bit on the side, but by and large their reproductive action uh, is, is localized. And so what happens is the male uh, prairie vole and the female prairie vole meet, they mate, and they're bonded forever. And the male guards the nest, he huddles over the young, and this is completely different from what we see, say, in montane voles. Now, a lot of work was done to try to uncover what might be the relationship between this rather remarkable behavior and the brain. And the very fast answer, which is really not exactly understood, 
goes something like this. That there, the density for receptors for vasopressin in the male prairie vole in one very special region of the reward system, the ventral pallidum, is much higher than in the montane vole. And in one other very special region of the reward system, the nucleus accumbens, receptors for oxytocin are much higher. The density is much higher. So you can do all the manipulations you think of, and basically it turns out that this is very important uh, for the prairie vole. Now, I emphasize for the prairie vole because it turns out when you now look at very recent data on other animals, including some birds, but also including mice, that the story may be a little bit different, that there are many ways of tweaking the genes, many ways of resetting that circuitry, altering density of receptors and so forth um, in order to get the effect. Now, I think oxytocin can be related to trust in a kind of interesting way. What we do know is that it's released in the hypothalamus and it downregulates activity in the amygdala. That causes a decrease in defensive postures, a feeling of it's okay, a feeling of, of, of safety. It also downregulates the sympathetic response uh, in the brainstem. Now, the story is much, much more complicated than that, but it's a very interesting first beginning that oxytocin should play this important role. Does it account for this hedonic aspect that we think is there between mother and infant? Probably not. Probably other things have to be there as well, such as the endogenous opioids or the endocannabinoids. Um, so that part of that feeling of love is not just going to come from oxytocin. Now, I mention that just to be a little bit curmudgeonly because um, there has been a tendency in the recent past to talk about oxytocin as the cuddle molecule or the moral molecule and so forth. And while that's really kind of fun when you're in the bar, it's not actually accurate uh, for what we think. So... It relates then to trust in a, in a deep way, I think, because if animals like to be together, then trusting behavior and cooperation can emerge. And so in the case of wolves, you can see that these wolves are able to... Um, here's a grizzly. She's brought down a caribou, and the wolves will drive her off. They are, they are well-placed around her, and they will just harass her and harass her, and eventually she will go. And it's interesting also to notice that they go through a kind of ritual beforehand where the wolves get together, they all lick each other, they're happy to be with each other, the male mounts them all, everybody knows who's who, uh, and off they go. But it's not been shown that you need a special gene for this. It may be enough, and in the case of humans who cooperate together, um, we have no evidence so far to think that there is a special cooperation gene. It may be that through this orchestration of this suite of neurochemicals in this very particular circuitry, that that's enough to give you the sort of platform for friendship and trust that can then flower into cooperation. And cooperation can take many forms. Okay, so... Over the last, uh, and, and this is partly as a result of coming to these wonderful Carter meetings, 
over the last 10 or 15 years, um, field biologists in particular have reported on many kinds of social behavior. They see reconciliation behavior. And uh, Duvall has reported on that from when he was a graduate student at, working at the zoo. Consolation behavior, when one animal dies or is hurt, the others console. Uh, you may want to say it's not real co consolation because they don't have real language or something. Uh, you'd have a hard time persuading me, probably. We certainly also see food sharing. We see third-party punishment in baboons, for example. We see alloparenting in chimpanzees. I know I've mentioned this on other occasions, but Chris Besh has, in the Ngogogo Reserve in Africa, has five disti uh, distinct cases of male chimpanzees who adopt orphans who are not related to them. They are not their sons or daughters. They can tell uh, by the DNA. And importantly, there is imitation learning. Of course, we do it in spades in humans, but uh, it is certainly also there to be seen in dogs, in wolves, in baboons, and chimpanzees. And of course, there is lots and lots of playing. And I want to end with this slide, and I know some of you have seen this before, but um, it, makes a real, it makes a serious point. And the serious point is that we all learn that orangs uh, orangutans are, are loners, and that is their nature, to be loners. Well, you know, it kind of depends. They are mammals. And it is true that in Sumatra and Borneo, by and large, they are. But when the resources are plentiful, and when conditions change, or as you might say, when institutions change, different behavior can emerge. And so in this instance, we see this very uh, tight friendship between the dog uh, and an orang. And similar kinds of behavior has been seen um, between bears and other animals, but also even between a dog and a fawn and so forth. What, where does that come from? I think it's sort of a bit of sloppiness in the system, that there is lots of flexibility in cortex. And when you have that kind of flexibility, that allows you to do things like fall in love with a dog. Okay, thanks. <laughs>